So basically, basically, they just sent notice today saying that minimize all sort of travel in and out of Beijing, and uh, and if if you need to travel for business, whatever, whoever who approves the travel from the government would be responsible if if there's outbreak. Really? Oh wow! Wow! Yeah. Hardcore man. No, that's, that's hardcore. That's, I kind of don't you think that's kind of good, right? <laughs> You're very accountable to what happens. <laughs> but then, what are the what are the penalties? I don't know. Oh, look at this! Wow, guy. Mr. Gradanada. Look at him! Look at you! I mean, what happened to your hair? <laughs> yeah, what happened to your hair? I need to get. I need to get him the light. Kit. Oh, there you there go. Okay, I see. Yeah. There we go. What happened to your there facial hair? <laughs> you look very Moorish. Like, you look ten years younger. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to look younger. Someone thought I was fifty, so you know it hit me really hard. <laughs> did anyone say Aladdin? Is, that, is that why you did it? No, no, no. To be honest, like, so I started Spanish lessons, and everyone around me is like twenty years younger than me. So I'm trying to fit in <laughs> and not look like an old person. <laughs> Wait, everyone around you is, is fifteen years old. What kind of Spanish classes are you taking? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, that's true. What the hell? <laughs> baby Spanish, taking baby Spanish. I can't say too much. Well, let's just say it's it's aligned with the level of the books that I'm reading right now. So yeah, your internet <laughs> feels very amazing today. Like it's so much better, even though we're in different countries. You know, I knew the answer was to move to Spain, but I just didn't want to, you know, like be so clear about it. But now it's clear. Did you guys see Tesla today? Uh, no, what happened? What's happening with Tesla? Yeah, tell us. Uh, orders for a hundred thousand vehicles as Hertz converts to electric rental cars. Jesus Christ, nine six three. Are you fucking kidding me? Should have got in yeah. on that. No, you, I man, I should have bought more. I should have bought more too, huh? You become a trillion dollar company. 2020, I got in and out of Tesla six times. Oh, I just held. I bought like a 40, but I bought a tiny amount. So yeah, so but, but now, you know, the last the last buy I think I did was at 620. Uh, so this is awesome. And now I'm just going to like hodl for life. Yeah, hodl, hodl for life. Hodl for life. Portal to the moon. Diamond hands. Diamond hands. Super stocks. Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the seventh episode of the LLB Podcast. Low-level Barbarians from Asia with debate and discussion on trending <laughs> topics with our usual hosts, Man of the High Ground, Dave Chang. What up? Helling from Wisconsin with the gazebo in the background. Yeah, yeah. Got a gazebo back there. <laughs> Jangan, the information super connector from his lovely office. New office, I guess, different scene. I'm working from home tonight. And uh, Andrew G, the master debater, hailing from Granada, Spain. How is Southern Spain? Things been awesome, guys. Y'all need to come here. We need to just start this podcast from here in total. Okay, so for the first topic, uh, Shopee is going all out in Europe. Uh, Jangan recently held a, sum- a summit where he probably discussed this on the panel, I think, and uh, Shopee reached a $200 billion market cap, uh, easily making it probably one of the 20th, top 20 largest tech companies in the world, somewhere up there. Um, and I guess some of the reaction from your discussion, Jangan, was what, surprise, shock, or what was going on? What happened? That was interesting. Uh, beginning of this year, in January, uh, we made a predic- uh, prediction that Shopee's stock was would be hitting $200 billion. Uh, by the end of this year. Uh, I think that was the 5th of January and when Shopee stock just broke 100. I think it ended like 103. Um, so, so, so of course, I mean, at that time when I was speaking with people, even people inside Shopee, they were saying that, okay, this is probably, probably overvalued. It's very high and the, the company's losing money 
And inter if, if you work internally, unless you are close to the founders, you see chaos. So, so many people were saying that, okay, um, Kate is still double. Kate, I actually even rise from that point. Mm. Um, and of course, I mean, now we are 10 months later and you see Shopee is a very different Shopee. So, so back then we, people were talking about it doing, um, uh, financial services. It starts doing lending in Indonesia and, uh, the Shopee pay was going, going offline, but, uh, but yeah, food. And food, food in January was actually not even in a in a radar. So, so we did we did a food report um in January this year as well, where we said okay, Shopee, mm. or by its subsidiary now, was the largest player in uh, in Vietnam. And even people in Shopee were saying that really, well, we are doing food delivery, and lots of people didn't know that. <laughs> but but of course, ten yeah. months later, things are very different. Um, now it has gone global. And uh, last week I was at a conference in um. I mean, online conference uh, held in Argentina where I was speaking, and there's so many questions about Shopee because people are wondering, who the hell are these guys who suddenly came out of nowhere and uh, now it's everywhere? And you see Jackie Chan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So, so <laughs> a Andrew, you are in Spain, and you probably you, you you are probably able to buy things from Shopee now. Yeah, I mean, Shopee is live. When you open up their their website, you see the the one euro. Or 0 0.99 euro products on sale already. So they're using the exact same new user cards that they used in Southeast Asia mm. when they launched new markets. Mm. Um, I think to, like the, the idea is very clear, right? The cross-border is where you have majority of cheap assortment. They're going to launch this in Asia. Uh, they're going to launch this in Latam. They're going to launch this in Europe. And this is their route in. Um, I think, you know, Jangan, we, we were discussing this on the phone as well, which is like South East Asia is a mobile dominant market. And so Shopee's big key in there was by moving on high um, repurchase rate categories like fashion, health and beauty, by moving into low AOV items and not focusing on basket size, by trying to get as many sellers as possible to sell. And then moving on this very like mobile dominated, young people dominated way of doing e-commerce. There's like an easy in way. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people in, in Spain where I'm at right now, um, probably don't even think about e-commerce that way, right? Because like, I mean, it's sunny outside, it's October, people walk outside to buy everything they need. Mm. But the story of e-commerce uh, globally, I, I used to believe this is an emerging markets thing, but is it, it is a story of access, right? If you live in Granada, like I do right now, um, my camera just broke down. I need to buy a battery part. In, in Malaysia, I would get it within 48 hours thanks to Shopee or Lazada. I can't do that in Granada. There's no site that I can find that actually has this battery part that can deliver it to me within 24, 40, not even five days. I literally have to go to Madrid or Barcelona to get it fixed. Mm. And it's crazy, right? We're in one of the most developed uh, places in the world. And, you know, I, I can't fix my own stuff, right? Whereas this isn't an issue in Asia. And it, it starts to get really funny when you think that we're from these emerging markets and I'm in a developed country like what does that really mean if you can't <laughs> buy things and just get your shit fixed right um and so i think i think this is like it's so easy to believe that we've hit some kind of peak and developed countries are at a certain level that other countries aren't but i actually think the reverse is happening like i've been on this tangent that Shopee's is going to be a trillion dollar company and i still believe so this is just the path towards that they've realized here that by building the assortment that they have um, from China, bringing it here, starting with cross-border and then starting to do marketplaces. And it's a very global business, right? Once you get DOM products from France or Spain onto Shopee, you can start selling cheese in China and red wine in China, right? The amount of money to be made on stuff like that is incredible. But I just want to shout out a couple of things that 
we may not be seeing here, right? So stock price has gone up. Shopee's launching a bunch of markets, but uh, there's two big things they did in these last few weeks that is absolutely impressive for me. Number one, Kavak, car sales company in Mexico. Shopee's one of the largest um, investors in their most recent round, right? So they had an 800 million round. They're now a, a what, I think, four or five billion dollar company and Shopee's a big investor there. So Shopee's getting into secondhand car sales and specifically the sec the largest LATAM car sales company. Number two, last week's biggest round was a Series B financing for FTX. FTX is a crypto exchange, um, yeah. um, largest market maker, liquidity pool, C Capital is on there again, right? So they're, they're taking that billion dollar fund they have and they are broadening way beyond mm -hmm. e-commerce. They're getting into crypto, they're getting into car sales, they're getting into all these other corollary things. And I believe they're not doing this the way Tencent is doing, which is just to be a silent partner. They're truly building a behemoth that is going to touch multiple different ecosystems at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I mean, these guys, are, these guys are on a roll and they're doing a great job. Interesting. Well, I think I looked at this um, a little bit differently than the rest of the guys. I looked at it from like a capital markets perspective. And so that's sort of like where I'm going to speak to this um, particular topic from. So it's super interesting, actually. Do you know how much the NASDAQ has uh, uh, performed, how NASDAQ has performed since March of 2020? No, it's probably one of the best years ever. No, It's doubled, right? So I think, you know, yeah. and why I'm bringing yeah. this up is I, in, the, in the context of any uh, publicly traded equity, right? I, I don't think you can talk about it without talking about what's happening with the rest of the market. And essentially, you know, if you think about it, the U.S. has to date pumped, I think, six trillion uh, U.S. dollars in uh, financial stimulus from COVID and, and and whatever, and that's not including you know all the other all the other money that um, other countries have deployed into the the capital market. So just the ecosystem in general, right? And I remember this conversation super clearly. So I I think March. Right around March, like end of March 2020, was when the first round of stimulus was announced. And that was a $2.2 trillion round. And I was having conversations with other family offices. And basically, every other family office was like, dude, we're getting rid of all our cash equivalents. And we're just going to dump it all into equities because cash will be worth nothing in the next just foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. right? And you see that um, inflationary effect, especially in tech stocks. But like in the general, the markets are up. But like tech stocks in general are way up. And if you look at Shopee's uh, market cap and price, you know, that there follows a similar correlation uh, because of that. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only reason that this is happening, right? I, I think the other way, the other perspective is, is this, like, I think we've all discussed this before, you know, the, the market cap or the value of any company is always a function of the narrative and the actual fundamentals of the business, right? So obviously, the, these guys are, have been crushing it. Right. The, I think like each of the main business lines of like, uh, gaming, e-commerce and payments is up like over a hundred percent year over year. So they're doing really, really well. Um, so that's a fundamental aspect of it. Right. But then I think the other way to think about this is you have to think about it from the narrative perspective and understand like who's actually buying this thing. Right. So if you look at their, their public float, about 70% of that is institutional money. So it's like your BlackRock, your Fidelities, mm -hmm. your T. Rowe Price, your Goldman's, whatever. And you gotta, to really understand, I think, the share price of the company or the market cap of the company, you have to get into the mindsets of the people that are buying it. So, you know, obviously these guys are institutional capital. They're managing uh, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. So therefore, they're deploying uh, hundreds of millions of dollars 
usually. So sort of both mm-hmm. in terms of like by practicality and from a reputational perspective, you're only limited to like certain companies, which are usually blue chip companies, because you're not going to rip like a, yeah. a five million dollar check into whatever because it's just not worth your time you're not going to get the returns from it and also you just can't really do it to your investor base they're going to ask you like why did you spend like three days doing research on this company for a five million dollar check it's just not possible right mm-hmm. um so so if you if you take that and this, that's one aspect of it you now there's certain certain companies that they can only buy only certain companies they can buy the second aspect of it is you know obviously they're huge diversified asset management companies so they need to diversify their their asset pool across multiple jurisdictions and multiple um uh, uh verticals and i think that's this is the question where like shopee comes in so if you look at sort of their narrative and i think it's a really good narrative right there are three major businesses again which is the gaming the uh e-commerce and sort of digital payments these three uh verticals are arguably the biggest beneficiaries of covid right because the i mean people can't go out they play yeah. games people can't go out to shop the yeah. digital payments uh right. they're in developing markets which again this is very much a growth story right so if i'm one of these asset managers sitting in new york and i'm trying to deploy capital uh and so i'm like okay so you know i can't put all my money into amazon i can't yolo it that way so i need to diversify a bit so what are some other companies or stocks that i can look at that are sort of like gives me similar uh, thesis match right uh and then to add on top of that i think there's another interesting really interesting point is the china question so if you also look at shopee's share price there's some pretty big spikes that are pretty closely correlated to when china starts announcing their various sequences of um regulation and antitrust and, and all that stuff mm. right so so basically what i'm saying is if you think about it like if you get in the mindset of one of these pms or these asset managers like here we have a company that's a market leader in growing sectors and growing geographies that have been able to shown that they've been able to execute on a high level and execute consistently and well right so that's that's one aspect of it two i don't really have a lot of other options if i'm really being honest like i can't really invest in china because that's really risky at this point i've probably capped out on my us allocations and there's not that much to do or there, there's not some comparables in other geographies so like my worst case scenario is i put a bunch of money into this thing and just assume that they keep doing what they're doing now i'll probably return at least the market beta if not a little bit better that's like my, yeah. my, my down case right whereas like my up case scenario is like they execute super well on all these things they're doing like they become the leaders in uh, brazil in europe their digital payments business like really really become something substantial blah 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 in which case yeah then we're talking about theoretically yeah like a half a trillion to trillion dollar company down the line so for me this is if i'm sitting the position in one of these people it seems like a like a no-brainer almost like yeah of course i would invest in this stock and so that's that's yeah. kind of like my perspective so on it so you're saying essentially it's a, an emerging markets kind of growth play for these institutional kind of money to allocate there's actually not much options right so you like what, what are you well, investing if you're in us in something similar like amazon which honestly like i think the points earlier that you guys said like i'm like i talked to my friends who work in amazon us there's so much more room to grow if you look at all the old department stores like macy's they're trying to do e-commerce, but compared to what Amazon's doing, it's like baby, like it's a it's a joke. And maybe maybe Jet is comparable, yeah. which is why Walmart bought, bought them, right? But no, like the Shopify play, right? I mean, there's a story oh, yeah, where Shopify. the DTC might might lead out True. and True. someone slowly kill into yeah. mark space yeah, but, and shares, which is also a global story that you know may happen. Yeah. Since we're talking about the investor's mindset, um, I mean, 
obviously we know that I mean all, many of the unicorns in Southeast Asia are, are, are rushing to get IPO'd. Um, so Grab will probably go there first and go to after they clear mm. the the Indonesian listing, which which solves them their their their, their income I and mean, capital gain tax issue. They'll probably go to the US as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we see these companies benefiting from this uh, narrative or this the sentiment or this? Um, I don't know, mindset, this abundance of liquidity as, uh, as well, or you see that, I mean, time might have changed, I mean, by the time they they go public? It, yeah, that's a, that's a really great question, I think. Um, I, we talked about this a little bit too. I think, uh, so, uh, like a couple of episodes ago, I think like one of the reasons Shopee did their big $6 billion round is because the, I, my, my personal belief is there is a window for them before all these other companies go IPO and become other options, right? I think my point at the time was if you believe in the Asia tech story and you're a public market investor, there's only like one company that you could really theoretically buy into, right? Which will no longer be the case in two or three, whatever the timelines are, like sometime in the next six months, right? So to, I guess to answer your question, yes, I absolutely think there's still an appetite for the Asian tech story. Uh, I think the, the big question here is what is going to happen with inflation in the US, right? Because as, as we all know, you know, when inflation goes up, the, uh, it, it has a depressing effect on growth stocks just because you can, you know, investors can get better returns by actually holding uh, cash or bond equivalents, right? So I think that's the big story. So, uh, or that's a big question. So unless we see some uh, single digit inflation against a sec- against a two digit percent growth, not comparable, man. Why why do you think that people would would hold cash and cash equivalents? Well, because right now it's like zero percent, right? Like right now we like the okay, yeah. yeah so it's a fine, it's a fair question. So I think like the U.S. Treasury yields are like they're basically flat. There's no treasury yields, right? And then the US, because I'm here right now, we're seeing like some pretty significant inflation in the last couple of months. Like I think the latest um, uh, consumer price index is 5%, which we haven't seen in a long time, right? So then the question becomes, what does the Federal Reserve do? Uh, So, I mean, obviously one of the easiest ways to combat Mm -hmm. inflation is Mm -hmm. you raise interest rates. Um, And I think anytime interest rates are raised, it's sort of the inverse of what happened, where before interest rates were zero, so much money was pumped into the system, there's no point holding cash or bonds, right? But now, once mm-hmm. your interest rates go up and you start, uh, whatever it's going to be, like two, three, I, I don't know what the actual percentage is going to be, obviously, but then all of a sudden, you have like an alternative that you can actually consider as opposed to growth stocks, right? So I'm not saying mm. that it's going to completely wipe out the liquidity, but it's definitely going yeah. to have an impact on it. Well, it yeah. also makes sense that all these guys are raising tons of like, it's going to look really smart in hindsight if this is a bubble and inflation is like a permanent structural change and things collapse. Uh, it's because a lot of these guys are going to be well capitalized to kind of weather the storm, you know. So, um, but like, I don't know, do you guys think that's going to be a problem in the, in the near or medium future where, where the, the, there's real effects of this? I have too much vested interest in the stock market to even <laughs> consider what you're saying. Alex. <laughs> I'm, you. I'm ready to put my cash in when it tanks. I don't know about you I guys. Mean, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna be wiped out or not. This but. conversation is freaking me out. My heart rate is going up. I should be relaxed in this beautiful place. But now I'm wondering whether I should convert some of my stock holdings into cash. I don't think a crash is imminent. Look, I think I think the logic is. Uh, I, I I don't want to get into like hippie land, but like if if anybody reads like Ray Dalio's work. Like there's a, there's a lot of this thinking about what debt cycles are and how a lot of these movements do happen, right? But the, at the end of the day, is I think with the West, as, and I'm, I'm painting very broad strokes here, the direction that interest rates have been going 
like, yes, you may have these little pop-ups every now and then, but we're starting to enter 0% almost permanently, right? It's, it's almost hard to find a reversal where we're even going to get to positive single-digit percentage again in the next 10 to 15 years because of just the way quantitative easing works, the way most developed economies have just moved interest rate policies. So I think this relationship between inflation and interest rates will start to see things crumble in the next five to 10 years. Where that goes and how it looks like is really not clear to me. Um, but for now growth stocks will continue to grow. I don't think it's a real bubble. I think there's fundamentals behind all of this, which is accelerated tech in the last two years for something that was going to happen over 10 years. Oh, it's, it's one point. I, just, it's, I don't think it's going to uh, crash, it's specifically Shopee, right? But I do think the stock is grossly overvalued, if I'm being honest, right? I did like a quick EV yeah. to sales ratio, and it has a higher EV it's sales a, ratio yeah. than Tesla. Like Tesla is like a 20, uh, maybe not anymore because the recent, it, it spiked up yeah. bit, obviously, right? So it's probably a little bit higher now, yeah. but like Shopee's like at 28, which is kind of ridiculous if I'm being honest. I'm not saying it's not a good stock or it's not a good bet. I'm just saying it's it's expensive, right? And like I'm investing yeah, my own money, so I wouldn't buy it. But if I was institutional capital, then that's a different question, right? I mean, since we touched upon macroeconomics, I'm not sure if you guys read the cover story of The Economist last year, oh, sorry, last week. So that was on, um, um, I think that the the implications of uh, of incident data, which uh, which many many of the government departments have been able to amass during during the pandemic. I mean, people are forced to sort of make decisions based on incident data rather than surveys, and uh, mm. and, and 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 of course, I mean, same as what Andrew said, right? I mean, lots of the development accelerated over the last two years, which could have, would have taken like five, ten years. And same for the government, right? I mean, lots of data now is available at their hands. And for them to make macroeconomic decisions, for them to make monetary or, 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 or whatever decisions, um, the question is that I mean, would they be able to use this data uh, in the right way? I mean, theoretically, they can they can smoothen over the, the cycles if they if they have all the real time data. But of course, there's always um, always temptation for you to overreact based on indicators, which um, which uh, which depends on how, how you interpret it. So 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 I think we're we're entering pretty pretty interesting times. But as far as I think shock is concerned, um, I, I look at the business; uh, it's pretty solid. Um, I, um, so I think what they have told their investors is that they don't have competition in Latam. I mean, I've done quite a bit of research about Latam. I, I believe in that narrative. <laughs> um, where you go to Spain, I mean, uh, <laughs> who else is doing e-commerce in Spain? Um, Amazon, Zalando. I, I, you know, I don't know why you're ignoring Amazon in all your analysis. Like, like this is a trillion dollar company. It's arguably I'm, one I'm, of the I'm, most successful companies ever. And then Jagat, sorry, sorry I, I need to call you out on this. Every every few weeks, Jagat goes like, Shopee's launch France. No competition. Like, <laughs> like I, I feel like Bezos probably is rolling in his bed because of your comments, dude. Like, like they've built out... Look, LATAM, for example, I agree with you. From from the Southeast Asian Chinese perspective, there is no competition. But the truth is, Mercado Libre is pretty entrenched. You've got Rappi, a bunch of others. But I, I do agree with you. They're going to be caught with their pants down. They don't even know what's coming to them right now, right? Yeah. But in, in Spain, for example, people use Amazon a lot. Um, um, now, whether or not that's going to change and people move towards a mobile app, I actually think it's not as obvious as you think. I think it's going to take some time before people actually change their habits. I was uh, I, I was speaking with someone who is uh, who is heading um, one of the countries for Amazon in one of the emerging markets, and um, mm. and he was telling me that uh, the biggest issue he faces is to get any initiatives done. So 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 mm. I, I remember him telling me that okay, whatever you, you you need to get done, I mean. 
from his country, he needs to co coordinate with the regional headquarters. He needs to coordinate with, uh, I think, Amsterdam. He needs to coordinate with Seattle, and this one, another office whose name yeah. I can't remember. So, so, yeah. so, 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 in this like a close fight um, in a market which is not Amazon's core, uh, I am actually, I'm, I'm actually pretty doubtful whether they can put up meaningful fight. Oh, the the, the question is, yeah. what the same applies for Shopee uh, if they if they grow big. This, this I 100% agree with you. I mean, theoretically speaking, AliExpress has the same issue. They've been present in all these markets for, what, 10 years now? And yet they've had no meaningful growth to speak well, of because because they they still run this as like a, 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 what do you call it? Like a transitionary office. Like the team is sitting in Hong Kong and in Shenzhen, right? Whereas like, I mean, anecdotally speaking, I've heard news that like Shopee's top press, Forrest and Yegang themselves, with their newly minted well, private jets have been flying around right forest bought yeah. a tv station in brazil they're both you know yeah. coming and spending some time in europe probably sometimes for personal reasons but i think they have a vested interest to actually see the company grow they're moving I, I, generals from within the company into these markets yeah i, I think that yeah. the nature of that also is because of of where they have been started out and also the, the dna of who they took in to build right and if you think about how rocket internet it's like you have this like you know this uh, mentality that you're not as big as China or America, right? So you know these big mm -hmm. countries um, think they know the right answer when they when they leave the countries. You know, like China going to Southeast Asia right. thought they could solve it. America thought they could solve you know you know all the parts. But so you have this big country mentality, but then you're too far away from it. But if you look at the, yeah. the culture of where Shopee came out of, Rocket, and then Forrest Lee and Garena, which I think is our next topic we're talking about, right? Is these guys have been forced naturally to you know. From day one, they have to think, you know, beyond their own market. Like if they just stay in Singapore, it's <laughs> we never know who Shopee is, right? So, so honestly, like then you think about how they want to expand, yeah. they they take the same approach, where they have to go themselves, you know. It's an go incredible ahead. angle. It's an incredible angle, and I think narratively speaking, you are right. Like I agree with you, but then I wonder why is it only Shopee? How come we've had, you know, this narrative is awesome, right? You come from a small country, you have a chip on your shoulder. Therefore, you build a global company because you have to. It's a necessity story, not really a, a, a you know, a, a, a natural inclination. But then, like, how come there haven't been any others? Why is this hypo hypothesis only true for Shopee and not Andrew? Because it, it is because because it's a fucking hard. I mean, if you look at the narrative for Amazon, it makes sense. But who else has done it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you make it sound super easy. Like, oh, I can snap my fingers and build a company. No, 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 no. no. So, so, like, I mean, look, the, the story that you're saying is almost the same reason for why, I don't know, the Dutch and the Belgians were such great colonialists in the 1800s. I mean, when I say great, I mean that with inverted commas. But, like... You know, at the end of the day, it was these smaller countries that wanted to build some kind of colonial presence. And so they were conquering as much as possible. Right. So it was a it was a narrative of like, we need land, we need resources. Let's go take as much as possible. We don't have what the Americans have. We don't have what the Chinese have. We need to build what we can. Right. Um, now, this is true to some extent. But then if this is true, how come, you know, how come more players have another? I, I get that it's tough. I get that it's tough. But like, but like. You know, I think, I think this is just us trying to make a narrative that makes sense and connect the dots backwards. Like, I do think Shopee has a bunch of special things. I don't think it's just because of, you know, them coming from a small country. I think I think the narrative you mentioned about we don't have what, uh, I mean, sorry, they don't have what uh, what the Chinese have, what the Americans have. But, that, but, but, but the reality is that they have both, right? They have the experience and people from China. Yeah. And they have the capital from the US. Yeah. So 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 it's so there are also, there are lots of things they can tap into. <laughs> that's that's incredible. I mean, it's also it's also secondhand yeah. mover advantage. We're not we're not talking about deep tech where you have to build like Amazon had to build this out first, right? And it's it's more about how you mobilize better with while while you know what riding the current trends and sentiment in waves. 
So yeah. it's just yeah. a better way, like, you know, more recent way to mobilize and execute. And they're, they're just executing better at the end of the day, right? True. That's all it is. Wow. So, I, just, I just want to call out, Jenga, that's incredible analysis. Like, to be honest, that is probably a story I agree with more. It's the yeah. first time American capital has been coupled with, with Chinese, you know, attitudes towards startups in this, like, beautiful coalition in Southeast Asia. Maybe that's the Southeast yeah. Asian story. Maybe it's about how finding ways to get American capital to meet Chinese tech hard work style of working and then like hit the world with it yeah, yeah. that's actually that's a pretty good narrative i mean if you think about why why we're why we're not in america or why jangan's not yeah. in china right yeah. it's like we it's, uh, it's no i haven't come together i mean and, i wouldn't be any competitive in china i mean same for uh, yeah same I for think, america for me yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so you don't work hard enough so yeah. <laughs> that, i would be cleaning toilets the fact that you have startups like ula who, who, you know, the guy has never lived in, in Southeast Asia. And then he was like, I can't do the startup in India, but it's a great idea. I'm just going to move myself. I, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ulia. They're raising a 200 million round with Tamasic and a bunch of others. Yeah. But the, the dude who's behind it never even lived in Southeast Asia, hasn't even set foot in Indonesia. Dude, I, but yeah. I keep meeting more and more in Indian founders that have been based in Southeast Asia for a long time. And they're incredible. Like, like yeah. some of the best talent that I've been talking to, and you don't hear about them, but they've been operating here for a while. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, amazing talent coming from India. Yeah. Alex, have you, heard of yeah. this, have you heard of this narrative from the Singapore government about why there are so many good, I mean, Indian founders, Indian executives in Southeast Asia, uh, and not as many Chinese? No. And that's the narrative from the Singapore government, where they were responding to uh, so, so, so. Well, yeah. you know, that's... They, they, they say that, but they are not friendly to giving, granting PR citizenship to them. I, I've interviewed many Indian employees in Singapore, hmm? and they've been hmm. living here for like 11, 12, 13 years. They don't get PR, but you get to take a Malaysian Chinese girl who's like, you know, 20 years old, no experience. Oh, immediately you get PR. You know, it's kind of crazy. There's, there's yeah. a disconnect there. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's tough yeah. to be brown, guys. There's no more I can say about that. So, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, uh, the narrative, this might not be politically correct, uh, from Singapore government when they're responding to people saying that yeah. why they were giving so many EPs to people from India and whether that, that, why there were so many financial prof uh, finance professionals for India working in Singapore. And the government response was, look, I mean, the reason why there are so many Indians and uh, not so many Chinese is because there are much more opportunities in China versus the opportunities in India. So, so we have lots of talent in India mm. and the competition is fierce. Naturally, some people will spill over to places like Singapore. So that's what Singapore government yeah. says. I don't want to get into the depths of this, but I have an understanding that Singapore tries to maintain some kind of, of quota between different Well, I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's really? a government narrative there, but also, also I'd say, I would say, I would argue culturally, like being in Singapore and Malaysia, there's going to be a better, easier transition for someone from India coming because they could speak English, right? If you're operating in this level of this yeah, bubble very, of very tech, yeah, tech elites, yeah. right? So I think it's an very easier cool. cultural translation. And I think a lot of the Indians I talked to, they, they said it felt not too far from home from them, yeah. not, not me. From, that's what they were telling me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. It depends on where in India they were from. Can I, yeah, can, I mean, all over. All yeah. over. I talked to many Indians. So. <laughs> can, I ask, can I ask one last question for this topic? Yeah. yeah. So the question is to Andrew. Have you seen Jack Maher? Have I met him before? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like last few days uh, in Spain. Oh, wait, is he in Spain? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, go say hi, dude. Holy shit, Jack. Jack, where are you? Jack. Is this yeah. is that where China exiled him? Is that what this It's like his version of Granada. I mean, honest, <laughs> honestly, if I was exiled, I would probably pick Spain as well. So, Jack, I get you, bro. You know, I see why you're hiding out here. The tapas are really cheap and good. You know, I, I get it. I get yeah. it, Jack. <laughs> 
It's his version of Elba. <laughs> like, wherever they sent him. <laughs> that's right. But that's a, that, 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 that's a huge, a huge vote of confidence for Alibaba stock over the last few few days. I mean, if you look at it, it's risen like 30% over over just one week. Yeah. Yeah. Since that news came out. Yeah. What the Jack Ma is in Spain? Or that. Jack Ma is in Spain. I actually did not know that. That's really cool. I'm going to go find out. Do you know where he is? Uh, probably on a York. <laughs> As the information man, can yeah. you get me his GPS coordinates? Connect me to Jack Ma. Do you have like find my iPhone to Jack Ma? <laughs> Shall we move on? Wow, okay. yeah, Jack do, is in Spain for a study tour. All right, let's focus, guys. Let's focus. So, do do we right. want to nitpick like why Garena was successful with gaming and the, the culture of gaming in Southeast Asia? And why you don't see this in LaM? You know, LaM does have unicorns, but there's none of this profit gaming machine that we see. Yeah. Okay. It's fair. Fair enough. I mean, if we're just talking about gaming in general, and this is maybe something that I really should have done more research for Lat M gaming. But I think, you know, what they did was really smart. They being being Greena. So so we've talked Greena. about this before, Alex. But you know, is everyone familiar with the the concept of the U curve or the smile curve in terms of value capture and supply chains? Can I explain to the audience. Okay, so in yeah. tech, uh, and just just sort of like all business actually, this is a concept of like the smile curve. So if you think about sort of your uh, like a you know traditional bar graph, right? Uh, on the uh, x-axis, you have like where you are in the supply chain, and on the y-axis, you have where you are in terms of value capture, right? So obviously you know, in your bottom left, that's like very low value capture and top right's high value capture. And then on the x-axis, if you're on the left, that means you're further up the supply chain and on the right, you're uh, downstream on the supply chain. So basically this originally came from a Taiwanese, um, I think chip manufacturer. And the basic the fundamentals of the heuristic is that maximum value capture happens at the upper, like the beginning supply chain and the end of the supply chain. So how that translates into um, like silicon is basically like, if you're a chip designer, you have high value capture. And if you're a chip marketer, you have high value capture. But the fabrication, that layer or that space in the middle is very low value capture, right? And if you apply it to like a media context, Mm-hmm. It's similar. Typically, people that own the IP for media, they generate a lot of value. And the people who are like sort of like the end control distribution of the media, they also have a lot um, of uh, value. And then the people in the middle are sort of like where there's not a lot of value, right? And so I think that's what Greena did that was ultimately very smart strategically is they basically took all the money they made publishing someone else's ip and use that to develop their own yeah. which is a much better business than just yeah. marketing and distributing someone else's stuff because you don't own any of that fundamentally that like that's like a very uh, uh fragile business because you could theoretically lose that license at any point and you don't have any real control you're just yeah. you're just a middleman essentially so that that was my only point about green i think that that move strategically was very good mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, it's also that there, there's a more of a gaming culture. In, like if you're talking about Southeast Asia and Garena, Vietnam was like the crown jewel for so long. It's like the biggest market where they made the most money for gaming. Yeah. And you know, you look at China, Korea, Japan, very similar kind of things about gaming. And that was a very good regional moat in cash cow. It's like you, know, you build your cash cow first, then you expand in something that's more cash burning. Then you know that at least you won't die. Or like in the, in the, you know, as the trend follows, you raise money, then you can print much, you know, more, more cash. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's very different than something like, I don't know, Jangan, you had a point maybe about Latin America and why, why this doesn't exist, or maybe Andrew will have some ideas about this. Um, I, I'm just going to jump in, like, first step into gaming. And, and I don't know if we spoke about this before, but I remember some time ago I did this analysis on unicorns and um, broken 
by industry types. And I remember gaming stood out because of two reasons. Number one, gaming has the best by far return of like amount of funding raised versus uh, valuation, right? So if you take funds as a percentage of valuation and you compare them across industry, gaming hits it out of the park. You just need very little funds to grow massive amounts of, yeah. of value, right? Is that industry-wide or that's for the companies which reach the unicorn status? So, so I, I downloaded uh, basically 600 plus companies that became unicorns. So it's 1 billion and above. I broke mm. them down into industries and then like analyzed mm. them for different kinds of factors, right? And yeah. gaming, gaming just stands out for a few different factors. And when I say it stands out, I really mean like the rest of the chart is just like a single line. And like gaming just like stands <laughs> out on, on this number. It stands out on years to become a unicorn. It stands out on average, right? And even if I remove like the crazy Decagon, if I took out Roblox and Epic, um, uh, and Valve, right? Like, like I took out the biggest one and I just kept like the, the unheard mini ones. It still stays, right? So it's it's quite an industry-wide metric that uh, that is very interesting, right? Um, now, why is it this way? And so this was like a very interesting avenue to try to understand what's this nature about gaming. There's a couple of things very interesting about gaming. First of all, um, you have two kinds of, of games, right? You've got very interesting AAA titles that just win... Uh, you know, a lot of money. Like as 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 a industry, gaming is worth more than music, movies, and TV shows combined, which is crazy, right? In terms of absolute value, um, and and that's because like per games, you know, AAA titles are extremely expensive. People buy consoles, people buy other things. But even if you remove consoles, just the media itself for gaming is expensive, right? So you've got this first this first block, which is like expensive titles as media. Then you've got the second um, new birth of things, which is like these marketplace platforms which sell basically nothing, right? You know, Fortnite sells you dance moves and people pay for that enough yes. that it's become one of the largest games in the world. It's free to play and then, you know, people are buying dance moves basically and then, and then they stand out about it. And then you've got these new like, you know, uh, double-sided marketplaces like Roblox, where you have developers that build mini games inside a game, and then you know you've got the game in the game that's happening as well, right? And 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 so I think I think the thing with gaming is that all of these three plays require a ridiculous amount of luck. You can't like you can't churn it out like um like uh, like so AAA titles doesn't work even in anywhere close to the same pattern that movies do like a movie takes at most six months to a year to produce right a triple a title takes five six years so like the this the sales cycle to produce one of its triple a titles is super long and you need a ton of resources behind it right so what then happens is you have this like massive indie marketplace model where most companies just become tens of millions of dollars or at most hundreds of millions of dollars and never break out and become big right so this is where i think like to answer your question alex i'm, I'm taking a long way to get there ladam actually has a lot of players in this sub 100 million play mm. right if you look at like you know the Candy Crush equivalents, um, mobile gaming, India, yeah. Latam, Eastern Europe has a ton of these players, right? We're talking small shops that produce at most two to three games that produce tens of millions of dollars, and they're happy to just keep it that way. These games will never become unicorns; they'll never become very big, but they're happy to like stay there. They might get acquired and and put into some larger play by another big player, but. Yeah. But this this like bottom of the pyramid is actually massive globally, right? Uh, and it exists everywhere. So so when we say success, it depends on what you mean by success. If you could run True. three 
mobile games that make you $10 million a year each and you're making $30 million uh, fresh cash and you get to live in Brazil. Some people would call that a good yeah. life. So, um, but that, that, yeah, that speaks to like yeah. the, the, like the broader topic we're getting to, which is the, the new, newer unicorns coming out of Vietnam, right? So if you look at Sky Mavis, which was uh, Series B only, became a no, unicorn, no, no. So, right? So, so, so Sky Mavis belongs in the other two pillars that I was talking about. So, so it's almost like AAA games, great media, right? The, the, it's a very steep cutoff pyramid. It's crazier yeah. than movies, right? It's massive, but it's yeah. great. But like what we were talking about, like Sky Mavis is a different place. Sky Mavis is the marketplace model, right? Which is creating a whole new industry that didn't exist before. It's what Fortnite is yeah. doing. It's what Roblox is doing. Sky Mavis uh, and Loot and all these new players are trying to create whole new business models that didn't exist Correct. before. This one is a luck thing, right? I think you, you've got to hit like three different things simultaneously that's to make a, a business model that's unique and different. Um, which let's, 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 let's break down what, what is Sky Mavis for people who don't know, right? So it's uh, uh, it's basically a crypto game gaming company. Right? Their main game is Ax, Axie Infinity, and it's like Pokemon, where you, you have to yeah. have these Axies fight each other. And essentially, each Axie is a NFT, a non-fungible token. Uh, and if you keep playing the game, you have ways to earn tokens from the game itself, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. it's... Um, Recently, Anderson Horowitz invested $150 million, making it a $3 billion valuation. Um, you know, it's on track to generate a billion dollars in revenue this year alone, which is, which is pretty insane. So, uh, and the model is interesting, like you said, there's a take rate of 17%. So, and, uh, yeah. but yeah. This, this seems to be the new breed. The other, the other different one, which is like reached the valuation status that's closer to what you talked about for the smaller developers is Aminotes, right? With over yeah. 2 billion downloads and 120 million uh, monthly average users. Um, their their biggest niche was like uh, Magic Tile Three, which is like you know mm. if you think about music and gaming, it started off with like Dance Dance Revolution in arcades. The evolution was Guitar Hero with console plus music. But what they did was console music plus mobile, which is now like on an iPad. We have this kind of music game that is very niche, but then it scaled really really big. And um, they're a gaming publisher, but they've been able to hit enough. Triple A titles, even though there's like a mobile developer to to be a unicorn status, right? So why why is Vietnam able to produce this kind of quality when we don't see this anywhere else? Well, I think well to okay to answer your specific question first, Alex. I actually looked into this, and um, I think college comes from like an education. Uh, well, it's two sides, two, two sides of this, right? There's like one, there's like a, a demand perspective. And I think the other side of that is, is a supply perspective. What I mean by that is like, as you've previously alluded to, gaming is huge in Vietnam, right? You were saying they're like Garena's most yeah. profitable market. Uh, there's definitely a huge gaming culture there. So obviously anything that's developed for the Vietnamese market has to be of a certain caliber. Otherwise, you just can't compete with all the other, op all the other options, yeah. offerings out there, right? Um, and second of all, actually, I found this really interesting statistic. I didn't know, but Vietnam produces uh, 50,000 ICT graduates per year, which is the most in the region, right? I think Indonesia Huge. produces somewhere Huge. between 40 to 50,000. Uh, like Thailand is like 20. Malaysia is very sad. It only had like 8,000. Um, and it actually even produces more than Korea. Yeah, small country. But yeah, but like even South Korea. South Korea is like a, is like a tech powerhouse, right? They have, they're known this is like one of their core yeah, industries correct. and they only produce like, I think 20 to 30,000 um, ICT graduates or software engineers um, per year. Yeah. So that's, that's one side of it. And then also they're of a, uh, maybe it sounds bad to say, but they're like of a surprisingly high caliber. So do you guys know like hacker rank is? Okay. I'll just explain yeah. it. So hacker rank is basically, it's a, it's a Y Combinator company from 2012. Uh, basically they put out these coding global 
coding challenges. And then people, uh, you know, 100,000 developers submit, and then they're rated by the community based on their output. And then every year they put out like a like a ranking infographic of where the top developers come from, right? So, so sort of at the top of the yeah. list is like what you would expect. It's like your China, your Russia, your Czechoslovakia. Those are like your, yeah. your tier one, more or less, right? But then like Vietnam is pretty high on that list. Vietnam is actually, I think, number 23 or something, which is only one rank mm -hmm. below uh, South Korea, which is 22. Uh, so, so essentially what you're saying, what's happening is you have like this huge uh, domestic demand and then you have like a lot of high quality people coming out of the education Which system going into this industry. So anything they produce is going to be of like a, a global standard, or if it's successful, it's going to be of a global standard because otherwise they would never have made it. So that's yeah. my perspective on it. It didn't happen overnight. Like uh, back in when I was living and working in Vietnam, it, it was it was already well known to have some like good quality uh, tech talent and also a lot of benefited from also a lot of American Vietnamese coming back home to build businesses in Vietnam too. So there's also this kind of uh, import talent from Silicon Valley and this kind of engineer ethos mindset. And uh, 10 years later, right, they're reaping the benefits of keeping on investing in this as, as a high, highly skilled workforce. And in the region, it's going to be very hard to displace that, I think, going forward. Yeah, I agree. I think like long term is going to be a really. I, I'm very bullish on Vietnam. Like just long term, I think they have a lot of things going for them right now. Yeah, Alex, uh, do do you think the fact that there has not been has not been that much venture capital going to Vietnam has that actually played a part as well? So if you look at Indonesia, I mean, so much money have. Yeah. In terms yeah. of um, in terms of having this talent available to to tinker with things to 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 do to play with their own things to build things on their own because because if yeah. you, I mean if you look at the case in Indonesia it's just like everything was 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 basically forced to accelerate the growth by by venture capital so 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 it's, it's very rare for you to have a case of uh, of somebody building a product that's for the global audience. Yeah, so, I, I think Vietnam is fun finally starting to to wake up and and like i I've, I've held this thesis for a long time so like from when i was working there is that mm. um it, it was just a matter of timing that people actually realized i mean it's vietnam is deceptively smaller than people think yes there's like 100 million people but mm. there's only two big major cities and the, the tams that you would actually probably reach are not that big it's probably equivalent to you know a more developed market uh, where wealth is more equally distributed, right? Um, so, but honestly, it was just a matter of time before the government got its act together, invested more in infrastructure that, you know, so, you're going to see reaping the benefits of, of money money coming in where then, then you know, homegrown unicorns shoot up themselves. And there's this regional moat because of, you know, it's its own language, its own government, its own ecosystem. And then it's just, it's a very different kind of way way to to grow. And it's just a matter of timing, I think. And we're, now, now it seems to be a very good time where people are realizing this. And I think now the VC money starts to come in probably. Um, before that, you know, even PE had been struggling for a long time, very small deal sizes, very small exits compared to like, you know, Malaysia or Singapore, which is much more developed in terms of AUM and management and exits. So, so I mean... My point is here is that uh, because of the lack of <clears throat> venture capital over the last few a few years, I mean compared to Indonesia, compared to Singapore, and because of the 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 uh, existence of of high quality talent and uh, abundance of high quality talent, uh, that might create different dynamics, right? Because if you look at, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say most, but many of the businesses being invested in Indonesia, they're essentially online to offline businesses trying to reform the existing sectors and uh, and. Uh, and I think the I think lots of talent there is very tied down to 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 sort of trying to well, reform the the the, yeah, the offline this, businesses. This was my other criticism, like like people, or and more like why people should have looked at Vietnam more is that from mm. an infrastructure perspective, I think Vietnam solved a lot of other things mm. uh, that you know 
much better than what Indonesia has. If you look at the largest companies in Indonesia, like you know, old industry, it's all consumer businesses, right? Like, yeah. uh, it's it's I don't know what what are some of the larger companies in Indonesia? Like, it's car companies, right? It's not it's something that's B 2 C. Vietnam has very big, well, like one one very big chaobul, I guess you could say, right? Which is uh, Vin Group, and but they 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 are primarily a developer first, mm. but they build out infrastructure. They build like they build all these other things. So it's like. In a different sense, it's a bit much more mature, um, but you don't see the returns as fast, right? So, whereas Indonesia, it's a lot sexier and bigger because of, but you have to be consumer facing if you want to go to Indonesia. But then that comes with its own stickiness of other problems. Yeah. And, and and if you look at the two earliest unicorns of this region, right? I mean, Garena, uh, which now became C, and and VNG, and this these were the only two software companies which became unicorns. Do we have other software pure yeah, software correct. companies? Everything else is like e-commerce, online, flying, etc. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And um, I, I mean, I think that was is very unique that Vietnam was able to do that. So it's it's possible that a lot of unicorns just could be country specific. Um, I don't know if you guys agree, like you know, because there's always this narrative of 600 million people, but it seems like not to be the case for for the case of Vietnam. And maybe other countries could do the same if they're comparable size. Philippines has 100 million people too, right? Um, Indonesia, of course, obviously. I don't know. So, so I think there's there's two parts here, right? One is you know, you have these asset-heavy sort of startups that happen almost everywhere globally. Like Uber has an equivalent in every market. And so yep. you can almost assume that the Uber equivalent in the market becomes a unicorn as well, just from the sheer size of the demographic um, dividend, right? And also the same for e-commerce, the same for all these corollary companies that support these things. Software standalone, to be honest, we don't really have a massive B2B SaaS unicorn yet. Uh, yeah. You've got Neom, mm-hmm. you've got some of these new, you know, fintech plays, um, um, Aspire, etc., that that may be getting into this region, but I don't know if we should like look. I, and and I'm, I'm caveat this by saying I'm a big fan of crypto. I'm a big fan of what you can do with crypto. But Axie Infinity is a standout for a couple of reasons. Right, one is it was a sneaky unicorn. It didn't like. It's not like you know. It's not like if you could uh, do a demographic trend, you'd be able to figure out that this weird thing was going to pop up. Well, it wasn't financially engineered, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you off the cuff and just say this: Axie Infinity is a modern day casino, right? At the end okay. of the day, the way Axie Infinity works is it's a play to earn. You pay like the average user spends 400 USD on Axie Infinity because you you need to buy your Axie first. So it's it's not just play to earn; it's pay to play to earn. Yeah. Right. Where else do you pay to play to earn? Yeah, casino. Right. Right. So the way it works is an average user spends 400 USD. They buy a bunch of axes. They then go and battle and try to get more axes. These axes are limited and scarce. Sound like casino chips, maybe. Right. And then as you get them out, you cash them out and you try to make money with it. Right. As a result, it's grown. It's a modern day casino. Just it looks and feels different. Uh, And and. Yeah, and the crazy thing is like it's predominantly played by Filipinos. So this isn't like yeah. some tool that's being played yeah. by you know, well, developed it, market. People. What, what's yeah. also interesting is that if if that was the insight of them building it, it, it's a perfect product market insight because all these countries in South Asia ban locals from actually gambling, right? So it's it's like a legal legalized way of gambling using decentralized technology to to achieve this. Uh, question, question: Does any, does anyone know how you can cash out with Axie? Yeah, you can, dude. It's tradable on Binance. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to go to a crypto exchange, right? And you have to buy. You have to buy the axes with ether. So I think just convert to yeah, ether. Yeah. You have to buy oh, so it's an F. Okay. 
yeah ether ether or um or the uh smooth love potion slps so so that bypasses the 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 the, the the cash out problems lots of the casino apps are facing, right? I mean, because 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 technically in all these countries you yeah. can't operate cash out yourself. Well, yes and no, actually. Yeah, it's actually I do know a little bit about this particular topic because we did a deal for when I was at Genting, we did do a social mobile casino game. And it's it's actually very so I agree with Andrew, first of all. What they did is actually I'm not sure if it's deliberate or not, but what they did was actually very smart in terms of skirting local gambling laws but how this question mm. is usually resolved with social casino games is you can't take out your earnings in cash what they give to you are like rewards instead so whatever those rewards are sometimes it's like a, you can oh. trade in your chips for like a toaster or you trade in your chips for like mm. uh, an all expense paid trip to some other casino where you gamble more money uh and so this is like i think like mm. uh, as andrew mentioned this is like a sort of like a more advanced way of, of doing this i think for me what's super interesting about axie infinity is i was looking into this company and i didn't realize that uh and i'm trying to also understand like why Andreessen is investing in the company is uh, apparently half of the user base of axie their experience with Axie is their first time interacting with anything crypto or blockchain related. And actually 25% of mm. the people who play Axie Infinity have never had a bank account before. So, right. So if you think about this as sort of like Ooh. either an on-ramp to crypto or, or, or blockchain projects in general, yeah. or an on-ramp to FinTech, I think this valuation starts making uh, a lot more, uh, to me, it makes a lot more sense. In that perspective, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it ties very nicely to the NFT. Like, the, the one of the problems with crypto, right, is tying it to real world value and gaming. Honestly, like from what I've seen by playing games and the amount of people who spend money on games, like even mobile games, are where you don't earn anything. You have people spending easily a hundred thousand dollars in a mobile game. Right? So like, you don't really hear about this unless you play these games, and, you know. And but it, it makes sense that people find real. Or you're one of them that you spend a bunch of money on the mobile game. <laughs> not, not that much. I, I spend a fair amount when I. Uh, yeah, it's. it's it's, it's pretty hey. wild how they get you, but it, you could, it could rack up easily with microtransactions. It's, it's pretty hey, easy. Hey, Dave, uh, <laughs> a, a few friends of mine run uh, sort of uh, casual casino games. So, 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 so essentially, how, mm. how how it works for at least the, the Chinese ones is that, uh, and and of course. It, you, you can cash in, but you can't cash out. But 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 yeah. but separate to the, to the game operations, you have a bunch of people called called uh, coin dealers, who would help you cash out. And uh, and these yeah. guys, mm. I mean, legally have no dealing with um, the game operator. But I mean, in pra- in practice, I you, you know how it works. And 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 actually, <laughs> actually, even it makes me think, right? I mean, in early days, what did Garena do? I mean, Garena in early days was going to uh, separate cafes in Vietnam to install the games and uh, and sell the game points. Yeah. And what did Tencent do in early days? Sure. I mean, it was basically um, have all these QQ coins and have, have had the ecosystem of coin dealers, and so that people can cash out. So, so essentially, I think certain yeah. things just don't change. It just becomes more convenient. Yeah. Well, actually, that's actually really interesting. Well, actually, I'm going to contest you on that convenient part. Actually, uh, it apparently takes like eight separate steps to uh, be able to play Axie Infinity. It's actually quite a complicated oh, wow. sign-up process. Yeah, because first of all, like I think you have to go, first of all, you have to like, find a way to get yourself some Ether, right? Because I think you can only buy the Axies with Ether. Right, so you have to figure that part first, and you have to actually get the app, and you have to do the transaction. So it's actually quite a complicated process. I think one of the reasons that they're doing so well is like, as was previously mentioned, forty percent of the user base is in the Philippines, and the Philippines have been locked down for the last 
I don't know, whatever, six, seven months. So mm-hmm. you just basically have a, yeah, you have a huge population of people who have nothing better to do and you can make some money playing this thing. So I think that's definitely helped to, to, uh, you know, boost their acquisition. So I, I think the, the reason why A16Z is getting in and why there's so much fanfare for this, again, slightly controversial view. The total market cap for crypto globally right now is somewhere north of 2.5 trillion USD, right? Somewhere between 2.5 and 3 trillion. Um, now that's, that's combining everything, right? Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ether, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is 2.6 trillion that doesn't have real fiat use cases. You can't take this Bitcoin to a store and buy anything with it. So it's, it's, it's actual tangible value is missing. It's intangible value is also missing. You can't buy an e-commerce yet. You can't pay on Shopify. You can't rent a movie with it. There's nothing you can do with it, right? And so um, there is a, an element of this which is actually market making. And there's an element of this which is market um, searching. Right. So it's not traditional VC where you're looking for a problem. But actually what's happening right now is a lot of people. That's why NFTs are also, you know, hitting stupid numbers. That's why startups that raise with both tokens. Like I, I was speaking to a bunch of startups that are raising with both tokens and with traditional angel rounds. And it's so much easier to mm-hmm. raise with tokens because a lot of people like just yeah, bought right. some crypto in 2019. Uh, you know, now they have, you know, a lot of crypto just lying there and they can't do much with it. Sure, you can do flash loans, DeFi, blah, 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 blah. But at some point, these become zeros that are just growing in your account. And you're like, well, what do I do with it? Right. So it's a very funky bubble that exists right now. Right. So I think what's happening is uh, and if you look at the way A16Z is raising their crypto around as well, it's also being raised like part of it. They're planning to raise with tokens, which is crazy. Right. So what's happening is this crypto bubble that's forming and then that's finding use cases to invest in. Right. I think that's why some of these things are doing so well, because people are just hungry for use cases. Yeah, that's true. So does that, that mean you put your money in quickly? Yeah, I did. Did you guys invest? Nice. Justin just pinged Jangan, me for the are safe. You gonna I need to have a, a read of the... I'm oh, just waiting for us to have a discussion. There is consensus. Yeah. Are, 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 I'll go with the group. I'm not... I can't. Okay. I, I'm cashed out. I had to put my money somewhere else <laughs> to do something last minute. So I'm a little cash strapped at the moment. So don't. What are you? What are you investing? What are you, share some yum yums, Dave. What's happening? What are you <laughs> investing in the? <laughs> what is this, Dave? I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. Come to come to Vegas with us. I heard you're going to be yeah, in the we, US. Come to Vegas. We'll talk about it. Oh yeah, yeah. I actually think the timing works. So let's let's do Vegas. Vegas. Let's do Vegas. Good idea. Why not? Okay, uh, one question for you guys then. Uh, do you think Axie Infinity is going to be a one-hit wonder or this is just enough to just keep building for forever? I don't think it matters, right? I think they've already reached... Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of companies you can arguably say are quote-unquote one-hit wonders, right? Like, like um, uh, it's called Krafton now, which was the developer of PUBG. Uh, they're yeah. a one-hit wonder and yeah. they're like a 20, they're a $20 billion company at this point. And same with Epic. Roblox is 36 billion. Yeah, yeah, it's a Roblox, one hit one day. Yeah, Roblox. I mean, I think is delineation. Yeah, is you have to have a game that's big enough to become a platform or that's built in a way for it to become a platform. Correct. If you Correct. think about all the yes. big, the, the major yes. companies or the, all the unicorns that sort of like popped out this way, they're all like sort of, sort of platform play, like Roblox, um, 
uh, you know, Fortnite's a bit different. They, they just use the Fortnite money to fund Epic Game Store, but essentially it's the same thing, right? So I think yeah, ultimately right. at the end of the day, it's just a question yeah. of what they do with, with all their, their winnings. But I, I think they've already reached a point where they're big enough, where if that's where they want it to go, then they can definitely go there. So, so we see them acquiring like 50 game studios in Vietnam. <laughs> well, so that's, that's the that's the thing, right? It's I think the model has shifted. That, that's the old world publisher model, right? These games had a limited cap. It's just they didn't have the right business model mechanics to to allow like microtransactions, which allow it to become a much, much bigger scale and size and grow yeah. grow a global ecosystem instead. So I think that's yeah. where where it's shifting, and that 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 in turn becomes more of a plat- more platform play, and turns into you know the blurring of the metaverse of of you know it becoming part of your reality every day, right? So. Um, mm. It's like you know your gaming becomes like Mythic Quest, the Apple TV show, right? It's something like ridiculous. Yeah. Like that. Well, I, th- I think it's two things. Like one is like it's it, part part of it is also yeah, part of it is like how the game was built, and also another part of it is just timing, right? Like for a long time, gaming mm, was, was this super niche hobby, right? I, uh, this is great graph that that basically just shows like the growth of the gaming market over the last like since like 1980 and starts like with arcades which is like this tiny tiny market and then console gaming became a thing and then you increase the market size and then pc gaming became a thing they increase market size again and then like mobile at this point is like 60 percent of all gaming and and mobile really what all of mobile did is it just brought non-gamers to and turn them into gamers because you don't need to buy a specialized device to to do it and now it's so prolific and so it's such a part of our culture that mm-hmm. I think, you know, yeah, part of its platform, but then also part of it is just like, it's just the, we're at the right moment in time at this point. Okay. So how, how do we think about, you know, if you want to build a unicorn in Southeast Asia, how should we think about it? Does, can you just focus on one country and then grow as a unicorn? Do you need like, can you focus on two countries or do you need the whole region? Um, how, how do you guys think, you, you know, if you're going to go build a unicorn tomorrow, how would you go about doing this? I mean, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be doing it right now. Yeah, but, same. <laughs> but if I quickly just like, like, I, I think, I think it really, like, you can't generalize. It really depends on what the answer is. Like, look, there are certain things, that if you're going to copy a very asset heavy model from developed markets and try to build it the way you're doing it with Grab or GoTo or whatever, right? Then you're playing the, if it's a B2C player, you're playing the demographic player, you've got to figure out where the demographics are and build it, right? If you're building a B2B software player, then you're going to be in Singapore or some other markets that you get to service, right? So I think it really depends on what you're building. Uh, would you, would have, you focus it more as a, a, you know, if you're starting a company, would you be more globally focused first then? I mean, so if you're trying to build a unicorn, I think you it's up to you. Like you can build a unicorn out of Vietnam if you wanted to. VNG is a unicorn, right? Go to the unicorn. You can well, build about Malaysia? <laughs> I mean, theoretically, Malaysia has you know its first unicorn now. Carson is a unicorn. No, no, Carson uh, is a unicorn. Yeah. And uh, and if you look at you know like. I, I, I fundamentally believe there's a bunch of business models that don't even exist yet in Southeast Asia that exist in other markets like B2B marketplaces, right? Or, or blockchain-based supply chain financing. These are all billion-dollar industries. But just from the sheer size of these industries, you're talking about trillion-dollar industries. If you have one player that takes even 1% of that market, you have a billion-dollar business, right? So so it's entirely possible to build billion-dollar unicorns. and. And it's funny for us because, you know, if you wear your tech cap on, then there's something sexy about unicorns. But the truth is people have been building billion-dollar businesses for years. Mr. DIY is a Malaysian business that sells hardware shit from physical locations. It's worth $6 billion today just because they figured out there's arbitrage in hardware products. 
right? Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, like call it, call a spade a spade. A billion dollar business is a billion dollar business. It doesn't need to have tech. It doesn't need to have some special elements. Anyone can build it. It's big market. enough. Yeah. So yeah. you don't need to have like a global business. You don't need to be a software business. You don't need to be sexy and hire people from Harvard. You know, you can be a construction or cement company and build a billion dollar business. Uh, let me add something. Uh, did you guys uh, did you guys see what I did with the Dimitri Levy of Central Ventures? I mean, we identified the, the pathways to become unicorns in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I saw that. Very cool. Yeah, this is where it's coming well, from. Can, yeah, can you send that to me? I haven't seen it yet. I think my network is playing up again. I can't hear you guys. Or just maybe briefly discuss Jangan. Yeah, I hear some interesting sound. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Maybe you could explain the article, Jangan, for Dave. I have a sign saying that can you hear me now? Sound, it's not stable. Can you hear me now? Jangan, tell your cats to stop using your Wi-Fi. Well, that was interesting. Jangan, thank you very much for that new <laughs> wrap-up. Uh, okay, any closers, guys? Anything to add? No, I think this was a pretty good discussion. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you in Vegas. Yes, I can't wait. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Okay, all right, guys. Great episode. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. <laughs>